There are two things everyone in this room has in common, and it's that we are sinners and we are sufferers. All of us in various degrees are struggling. We have suffered in the past. We are suffering right now, or we will suffer. So before we hear from God, I want us to put our finger on something that is broken in your life right now, or something that is broken in your own heart, something that you want God to heal. If he says, hey, what do you need? What do you want me to heal? What is the thing you would pray for first? Think relationally. What needs to be healed relationally? With your spouse, with your parents, with an old friend now, with a child. What needs healing emotionally? Depression, anxiety, maybe anger and irritability. What needs healing physically? I know most of the church is young, but many here be hurt physically. What needs to be healed physically? What needs to be healed spiritually? Sin patterns, wrong views of God. Loved one, God brought you to church this morning to say he wants to heal that. That thing that you just put your finger on, God brought you to church this morning to tell you, I want to heal that. In the passage we're in this morning, it reveals who Jesus heals, how he heals, and when he heals. And I've never studied this passage this, this, uh, ever before. And guys, this week I have just been crying like a bubbling mess because this is breathtaking. Last week, Jesus told us um, that what goes into a person doesn't defile them, but it's what comes out of their heart. And then Mark inserted this little parenthetical in which he tips his hat and tells us what Mark chapter 7 is all about. Look at the end of Mark 7, verse 19. This is uh, the Holy Spirit's parenthetical through Mark. It says, thus he, that's Jesus, declared all foods clean. In the Old Testament, there were food laws which were meant to separate God's chosen people, the Jewish people, from everyone else. Raise your hand if you are not ethnically Jewish. Your your family doesn't come from Israel. You're probably from Sweden or Germany. Yeah. Okay. That's about all of us. So for thousands of years, you and I were cut off from God. It was only the Jewish people who had access to God. It was only Israel who got to live before him. You and I were utterly hopeless and helpless because of our family tree. Until Mark 7, verse 24. See it in the text. This is your redemption story. If you're not an ethnic Jew, this is where you get written into the script. Mark 7, verse 24. And from there he arose, that's Jesus, and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So Jesus leaves Gennesaret and walks 20 miles into Tyre and Sidon. And at first glance, that doesn't really appear to be significant at all, but I cannot overstate this. For the first time and the only time, Jesus has left the historical boundary lines of Israel. 
Jesus, the God of Israel, who we just saw a couple weeks ago, is revealed as the God of Israel just walked into Gentile land. He's crossed the tracks. And it's not just Gentile country. Tyre and Sidon is where Queen Jezebel, one of Israel's most notorious and wicked villains, was from. So to the Jew, Tyre and Sidon represented the single place furthest from God. So now I want you to gasp after I say Tyre and Sidon. Ready? Verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Perfect. Perfect. And he entered a house. Well, everyone knows that it's unlawful for a Jew to enter a Gentile's house. That's why in Acts 10, Peter doesn't want to go into the house of Cornelius. Good Jews don't go into Gentile homes And yet Jesus, the God of the Jews, does. He's not just on the wrong side of the tracks now. He's entering their unclean homes. Why? Because he's exhausted. He's trying just to get a minute away from the crushing crowds. Look again at verse 24. He entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Have you ever heard someone ask, you know, if God can do anything, can he make a burrito too big to finish? Have you ever thought of that? That one's kept me up at night. The premise, if God can do anything, is fallacious from the beginning. Of course, there are a lot of things God can't do. God can't be unloving. God can't be unjust. God can't act against his attributes because doing so would necessarily ungod him. And I just think it's dope that in verse 24, there's something else Jesus can't do. He cannot remain hidden. His glory, when revealed, is unignorable. Verse 25, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Okay, now we need some more gasps. Ready? Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Perfect. Guys, this woman is the ultimate outsider. She's a woman. Women aren't allowed to approach rabbis, especially when they're trying just to get some quiet time in a house. Worse than that, she is a Gentile and not just a run-of-the-mill pagan. In Matthew's account, she's a Canaanite. If you've ever read your Old Testament, you know the, uh, the, the, Can- I mean, the Philistines, Philistines are bad, the Ammonites are bad, but the Canaanites were the worst of the worst. Mentioned 150 times in the Old Testament, the Canaanites are always lifted up as the worst of the worst. I don't know what you've done, but your sins don't hold a candle to the Canaanites. And you say, I struggle with porn, man. Well, the Canaanites were known for their orgies, which included the whole family. You say, well, I struggle with patience with my kids. One scholar writes, when the Canaanites would build a new house, a child would be sacrificed and its body built into the wall to bring good luck to the rest of the family. Firstborn children were often sacrificed to Molech, a giant hollow bronze image in which a fire was built. Parents would place their children in its red-hot hands, and the babies would roll down into the fire. The sacrifice was invalid if a parent displayed grief, 
mothers were supposed to dance and sing. You guys, these people were orcs. And right now in verse 25, Jesus, the God of Israel, is talking to one. Why? Because she's, she's hurting. Look back at verse 25. Immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Matthew gives us even more detail. Matthew 15, 22 is the parallel account. And it says this, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but she came and she knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Who does Jesus heal? Point one, if you're taking notes, those who are desperate. Why is she so desperate? Well, she's desperate because she's not just a Canaanite. Guys, she's a mom. And her little girl needs help. In his book, The King's Cross, Tim Keller says there are cowards, there are regular people, there are heroes, and then there are parents. Parents are not really on the spectrum from cowardness to courage because if your child is in jeopardy, you simply do whatever it takes. And all the parents said, amen. There was actually a study done where researchers looked at all of the recorded alligator attacks on children to see if there was a different parental response between how the father reacted and how the mother reacted. And they did find an observable pattern. The father would usually grab a weapon and then attempt to rescue the child, but the moms, they didn't look for weapons. They became the weapons. No hesitation, jumped in, punched the gator in the face. Like, which is why we're celebrating moms next weekend. Husbands, you knew that, right? Next weekend, take notes. So this woman, because she's a mom, is as desperate as any of you moms would be if your child was being tormented. But here's my question. Matthew says that as she's crying out on her knees, Jesus didn't answer her a word. Luther said he sat silent as a stone. Why is he doing that? Because he's putting his finger on her faith. He wants to know, are you truly desperate or are you just despairing? There's a big difference between despair and desperation. Despair says, this is the worst, I have no hope. Desperation says, this is the worst, you are my hope. Hosea 7.14 says, when people despair, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. Yeah, they wail. Yeah, they worry. Yeah, they whine. But they never actually cry to me from their hearts. As you've been praying for Jesus to heal certain things, as you've been praying for God to move in your life, if he seems silent as a stone, he may just be waiting to see if you will get desperate. Psalm 50, 15, God says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. This woman responds to Jesus' silence with redoubled desperation. She says, I'm not leaving. 
I'm not going anywhere. I don't care if the disciples are telling you to send me away. You're my plan A. I don't have a plan B. And guys, I can just testify that in my own life, the times that God has moved most powerfully have been the times where I, day after day, just spent time on the carpet, forehead to the floor, crying out in utter desperation to God. You see, God loves to show himself to be strong to those who show themselves to be weak. This woman is desperate. She's also persistent. Look at verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him. That right there in the Greek is present continuous tense, meaning it's over and over. It's why the disciples are begging Jesus, hey, just get her out of here. Get, send her away. Guys, who does Jesus heal? He, he heals those who are persistent. So there, there are two kinds of ditches that we can fall into when it comes to healing. The first ditch is some people will say God always wants to heal. No uh, reservations. God always wants to heal. And if you're not healed, it's because either you have a sin problem or, or you don't have enough faith. That's not true. In fact, I would say stronger. That's satanic because it attacks the very heart and purposes of God. Sometimes God withholds the healing asked for to bring about a, a deeper healing not asked for. So there's other ditch, though. Luther said there, there's a lot of ways a drunk person can fall off a horse. There, there's, we can always fall off ditches. Here's the other one, and I think it's the one that our church is more at danger of falling into. God is sovereign, I prayed, he didn't answer, so it must not be God's will, so I'll just stop praying. Listen, any theology that leads to prayerlessness is also demonic. Yes, we trust God's sovereignty. Yes, we have the posture always of, yet not my will, but yours be done. But guys, God wants us to keep praying. He wants us to keep knocking. He wants us to keep seeking Isaiah 62, 6 says, You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. Give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it the praise on the earth. Jesus said in Luke 18, 1, that we should always pray and never lose heart. So if Jesus seems silent, I think he's putting his finger on your faith. He's saying, okay, will you really get desperate? Will you prove yourself to be persistent? Will you keep knocking? Will you keep asking? Will you keep coming after me? This woman does. She's begging Jesus for help. And now look at how he responds in verse 27. It says, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yikes. I have always struggled with this verse. I've never known what to do with this verse. It seems at least rude, at worst, racist. In fact, there was a viral video going around a couple months ago where someone used this verse to say, see, Jesus struggled with racial biases too. Side note, whenever you come across a passage that makes you go, yeah, I don't know what to do with that, don't move on, move in. Glory hides in the, huh? 
So when you move in on this verse, contrary to what the TikTok videos say, Jesus isn't struggling with racism. He's blowing it to bits. In Jesus' day, Jewish men would call female Gentiles dogs, which carried the exact connotation that the B word carries today. However, Jesus doesn't use the word, the normal word for street dog. He uses what we call in Greek a diminutive, and a diminutive takes big things and makes them small, adding affection. So a girl becomes a little girl, and our house becomes our little house, and a dog becomes puppy. Because Jesus uses the diminutive form for dog, we know he's not being brutal. He's being playful. Uh, I'm currently teaching my two-year-old how to play basketball with one of those like Fisher-Price, you know what I'm talking about, those little plastic nets. And every time he gets the ball, he runs over and he leans it all the way over and slam dunks, right? And if I'm in a particularly playful mood, I'll say something like, hey, you can't do that, you little cheater. You got to leave it up. Okay, now, if you just read a readout of our game together, you would be like, did Chris just call his son a cheater? Can he even be our pastor after that? Like, you can't do that. But when you look at the diminutive, you little cheater, you know, I'm not being brutal, I'm being playful. So this here is not a racist put down. This is a playful Terrible. The tone is Jesus saying, you know that the, the children, the Jewish people, they must be fed first. Would it be right for me to take the child's food and give it to the puppy? And how does she respond? Does she gasp in offense? Verse 28, but she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. I suspect she saw him smile, and then she smiled and said, yes, Lord, yet even the puppy gets the children's food, right? Guys, catch this. For the first time in the gospel of Mark, someone has actually understood a parable. The disciples have not understood one yet. The crowds have not understood one yet. The first person to understand a parable of Jesus is a Canaanite woman. She gets it. She says, yes, I I recognize salvation belongs first to the Jews. I accept that I don't have a place yet at the table, but I see something. There is an abundance of grace on the table. It's a feast. There is more than enough on the table for the children. And so if you say I'm a puppy in your story, then the puppy is in the room and she gets to eat too, right? And how does he respond? Look at verse 29. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. We see even more emotion in Matthew's account, Matthew 15, 28. Then Jesus answered her, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Who does Jesus heal? Those who are humble. Did she gasp in offense? No. Psalm 136, 8, 
For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, James 4, 6. This woman could have responded in pride, how dare you? She could have responded in despair, okay, I'll just leave then. But she looks at Jesus and she says, I I know, I have overwhelming sin, but I know you have overflowing grace. So help me, not because of who I am, a Gentile. Help me because of who you are, an overflowing fountain of grace. This account shows us, guys, that prayer is about becoming spiritually fit to receive what God is already willing to do. Jesus was already willing to heal and save this woman's daughter, but he stayed in silence. Silence. He, he delayed. Why? To put his finger on faith, to draw her out, to see her step into desperation and persistence and humility because it's the desperate, it's the persistent, it's the humble whom Jesus heals. But now we see how Jesus heals. Look at verse 31. This is where I've just been crying all week. This is so beautiful. Verse 31, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So polis means city, deca is the number for 10. So Decapolis is the region of 10 cities on the eastern side of the sin, only to go then back around and down to Decapolis. This is not a straight shot at all. It's a 120-mile march through the hard wilderness regions of Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon. Remember that. Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon. Verse 32. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. Again, there must have been some kind of delay if, if they're begging Verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. So if if the disciples felt like they needed to apologize for the dog comment, what are they feeling now? If you brought a friend to a party and you look over and they have their ears in someone's, or their fingers in someone's ears and they're spitting and touching tongues, like how fast are you stepping into that? We are going to the car, right? (laughs) Jesus has done some odd things, but now we've got a double wet willy, spit swap, tongue grab. But again, what seems strange at first glance is stunningly sweet. The Holy Spirit is showing us how Jesus heals. Look at verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately. Jesus heals privately. There are thousands of people around Jesus. Everyone is vying for his attention, and he takes this man's hand and leads him into the private place. Why? Well, in these days, they didn't have Special Olympics. Persons with disabilities were not cared for. They were not supported. They were not loved. They were ignored and neglected, even scorned and despised. So Jesus, this man's creator, feel that. This man who made this man just like this says, I see you. 
I know you've been pushed to the back all your life. So come, I want to give you my undivided attention. Loved one, if you need healing, follow Jesus into the private place. Yes, Jesus will heal within the context of community. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. But there's some healing that can only take place in private between just you and the Lord. This is why Matthew 6 talks about pray in private, fast in private, give privately. What is that? That's Jesus taking us aside from the crowd, away from the chaos, so that we can have undistracted, undivided communion. It's how he heals So for me, I need to be up two or three hours before anyone else in my house, not because I'm godly, but because I'm not. I need Jesus to take me aside privately every morning to continue his very slow healing work on Chrysostomus. Loved one, you also need to be healed, and the real Jesus will also be in your private place. Maybe it's before people wake up. Maybe it's after people go to bed. Maybe it's in between classes where you can just kind of get a little bit of time alone or in between meetings, whatever it is. God himself, feel this, God himself wants undistracted, undivided time just with you to continue his very slow healing work. Jesus heals privately, but more beautifully, look at verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. What's going on here? Well, what's the man's problem? He's deaf. His ears don't work. He has a speech impediment, which is an exceedingly rare word. It's actually used only one other time in the entire Bible, but it means most basically his tongue doesn't work. What is Jesus doing here? Guys, he's putting his fingers in the man's brokenness. He's not doing it for the onlookers. We already know they're in private. This is just for him. You guys, Jesus is doing sign language. He knows the man can't hear anything. So he comes to him and tenderly says, I see you, and I'm going to heal these. And I'm going to heal that. And he does. Could Jesus have healed this man from a distance? Yes. We just saw him heal the the woman's daughter. Telepathically or something. He just said it and it was done. But now, he brings this man into a private place. And what was done invisibly to the woman's daughter is now done visibly right before our eyes. Spirit of God, through Jesus, touches the man's brokenness. God heals by putting his healing hands right into our brokenness. Guys, the Spirit doesn't stiff arm us and heal us from a distance. No, no, he he touches us right where it hurts. Here, Jesus literally rolls up his sleeves and touches the very things about this man that made his life 
heart. How does Jesus heal? He heals individually. He heals individually. When you get alone with Jesus, he's not going to deal with broken things in a distant, detached, generic way. No, he's going to see your brokenness and he's going to put his healing hands right in it. Right where it hurts. So here's the question. What is making life hard? Why is there a governor on your joy this morning? What's, what's that thing that's holding down joy? What hurts right now? Where are you hurting? The Lord wants to touch that. He wants to heal that. And so this week, let him touch where it hurts. Let the good physician do what he does. This means going into a private place and getting really, really honest before the Lord. This means literally just laying it all out there, saying, God, this, this is where it hurts. And what I love about this is it's going to look different for all of us. Jesus heals this, Jesus does sign language to this guy. In a couple of weeks, he's going to use mud. His healing is tailor-fit for every person individually. So I, through the Spirit, according to his word, I have no idea how he's going to heal you. I don't know what he's going to do in your time alone with him. But it's going to be tailored fit just for you. And you can skirt around the real issue, but he's going to take you right there. And his hands are not there to hurt you, but to heal you. So Jesus heals this guy individually. And then look at verse 34. And looking up to heaven, notice Jesus never did anything independently from the Father. He sighed, underline that, and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. The word sighed here is the same word translated groan in Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In Mark 7, Jesus groans because he identifies with this man. Before he brings this man's healing, he takes on his pain and it makes him groan. Jesus heals compassionately. Remember we learned the word compassionate a couple weeks ago. It literally means to feel, to feel in one's bowels and gut. Way down in the deepest part of Jesus. He feels what you're feeling. What's causing you to groan in life right now? Is it the state of your heart? That's mine. The thing that makes me groan is the state of my sinful heart. Is it the state of your marriage? It just feels like some things are irreparable. Is it the state of your family? Just don't talk like we used to be able to talk. Is it the state of your life? You have no idea what this summer is going to look like or what to do this next fall, and it's just causing you all kinds of worry and anxiety. You have to see this, guys. 
your groaning causes God to groan? Like, what can make God groan? Answer, you're groaning. You're not groaning alone. In Mark 7, God Almighty stands before a man, sees all of his pain, sees all of his sin, and yet still feels such compassion that it causes God to groan in the deepest part of his gut. God sees what's on your heart this morning. Listen, he sees your sin, all of it. And he still feels such love and compassion toward you that your groaning causes him to groan. But he's not just a sympathetic shoulder. He's a sovereign healer. See it in verse 34. And he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus told them, tell no one. <laughs> but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Guys, I want us to leave church today zealously proclaiming he does all things well. But the throbbing question of this text is, when will he heal? You might have been thinking, Chris, I've been desperate. I've been persistent. I have humbled myself, I think, before God and prayed and fasted and cried out to him, and I still haven't experienced the healing. When will he heal? Well, I told you that Mark chose one word for speech impediment that is only in one other place in the entire Bible. It's Isaiah 35. Listen to Isaiah 35. This is Mark's not-so-subtle way of saying, guys, Isaiah 35 is being fulfilled right now. Isaiah 35 says this, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of what? Shall be given to it the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord. It's John 1, right? And the majesty of our God. You look down at verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And here's the word that is only else in Mark 7. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. You see, Mark wants us to know Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah 35. Jesus marched 120 miles through the wilderness. Why? To heal you. But it still doesn't ask, answer our question, right? When? When? Well, look down at verse 10. Isaiah 35, 10 says, and the ransomed of the Lord, ransomed. And we got crosstalk here shall return and come to Zion with singing. 
everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and, what word? Sighing shall flee away. As the when ultimately is, is coming. There is nothing you can experience in this life that a good resurrection can't fix. Jesus has fulfilled Isaiah 35, which means your groans are, in fact, limited. There's a numerical value. Every time you groan, there's one less. There is a real day, loved one, on a real calendar that God has where your last groan will be uttered. It'll be the last time you hurt, the last time you weep, the last time that something is hard. And then you will enter into what Jesus has for 2,000 years now been preparing for you with everlasting joy and gladness and dancing and singing. And you guys, you just have to believe this. This is not just theoretical. Isaiah 35 is actually how you will spend eternity. It's actually how you will live for trillions and trillions of ages. Fully healed. Finally healed. Forever. And you go, how, how does that happen? Well, because there's a past tense when, when we got healed. And you saw it in the text, and the ransomed of the Lord. It's the cross. Isaiah 53 says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. See, guys, your ultimate, if you're a Christian, your ultimate healing has already taken place. It happened in AD 33 on a hill outside Jerusalem. Jesus healed you finally and forever. In a very short time, this is called the already not yet of Christianity. In a very short time, you will never groan again. Everything that hurts will be healed. And not just for a little vacation, for trillions and trillions of periods of time. And we now live in this little place where what we know to be true spiritually and what we're experiencing every day is becoming increasingly in accordance with one another. So will God heal what's heavy on your heart this morning? The answer is, we don't know. But we go after it with persistence. We go after it with desperation. We go after it with humility because we have hundreds of verses that say, you cry, you ask, you plead, you knock, you seek, you will find. So guys, we pray. And I'm sure a lot of, many of us can testify, oh yeah, there have been prayers that God has already healed in my life. Praise God, he wants to do that. And if he's doing a deeper healing than the one you're praying for, we groan and we wait. But we do so, not without hope, but with leaping like a deer. Because we know this future, everlasting joy, eternal gladness and joy, sorrow and sighing is falling away. 
Amen.